Next few months, I hope to go through the first four chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, just take a, a little bit of it at a time. Uh, we'll come back to it again, God willing, later next year and look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 to 7. Uh, but over these next few months, we're going to look at chapters 1 to 4. And just as you're finding your place, I'll say a few things by way of introduction uh, to Matthew's Gospel, just to save time on the other side of the reading so that we can uh, immediately begin our, our studies in God's Word. Uh, obviously, the book is written. It's, there's, there's no dispute amongst the early church fathers that this gospel was written by a man called Matthew. He's also called Levi in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, and Luke 5, 27. So a man with, with two names, as many of us have our, our two names and then our surname. Uh, and Matthew himself, friends, the, the man who wrote this book, he is a good example of what this book is really all about. That the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ is for all kinds of people. Matthew was himself a tax collector, as we'll see, as, as many of you know, and as we'll see as we get there eventually in his gospel. He was hated. He would have been hated by his fellow Jewish citizens for taking that job. It was uh, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low. The tax collectors were lumped in with prostitutes and others as the absolute worst of society for taking on that role of working for the Romans. And, and some of you will know the reasons for that. We'll, we'll look more at it in due course when we get there. And yet Matthew became a follower of Jesus Christ and not just a follower, but one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And so God's grace is for all kinds of people. And we see that even in the life of the one who wrote this book, uh, there's debate about when he wrote it, uh, whether it was before or after the fall and destruction of uh, the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. It doesn't really matter whether it was written before or after that date. Uh, most reformed scholars these days suggest that uh, it would have been written before, 50, before 70 AD. And there is a tradition amongst the church fathers that it was written during the lifetime of Peter and Paul, both of whom died in the early 60s AD. Um, so... A lot of scholars suggest that Matthew was writing before they died. Uh, who's it for? Well, quite simply, it's for everyone, as every book of the Bible is. Who was it for in the first place? There's some debate again about that. Again, it doesn't much matter whether it was for one particular church. It is, by definition, a gospel. Gospel means good news, and good news is for everybody. And so Matthew's gospel though it was written perhaps for particular people in the first place, is for all people today. And Matthew would certainly have had in mind Jewish people and Jewish Christians when he wrote his gospel. And Matthew himself was a Jewish man. And more than any other writer, what, what dis, more than any other gospel writer, what distinguishes Matthew is the time and attention he takes to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, the USB Greek New Testament, the, the standard Greek New Testament text uh, today, uh, it suggests there are 54 direct citations of the Old Testament in Matthew. So 54 direct quotes of the Old Testament in Matthew and a further 262 allusions or parallels. So even if they're not direct quotes, over 260 uh, maybe phrases or ways of telling the story that would very much have been intended to remind Matthew's Jewish readers 
of the Old Testament. So Matthew, friends, is very keen, as all the gospel writers are, but Matthew is particularly keen to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so he's writing to Jewish people and he's reassuring Jewish Christians that they're right to have broken with the Jewish institutions of their day, which essentially were empty religion by this point, to have turned their back upon them and instead to have become part of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, R.T. France, one of the best commentators on Matthew's gospel, uh, he says that the central theme of Matthew's gospel is fulfillment. If you want to sum up Matthew's gospel in one word, France says you should sum it up with the word fulfillment, that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And for that, it's perhaps for that reason that Matthew's gospel was the favourite gospel of the early church. It's not that they ignored the others, of course, but they did tend to quote from Matthew and read from Matthew more than the others in the early days of the church because they were keen to show that Jesus was the fulfilment of the Old Testament, that uh, faith in Christ and the Christian faith uh, that went with it was the legitimate uh, continuation of the Old Testament. And then, of course, Matthew's also writing for Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as all of us are here today. And although he is keen to show how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, he's also keen to show that Jesus is a saviour for all people. Uh, And part of the way that comes out is by the fact that Matthew's gospel, one of the ways you can structure it, although you have to do it loosely, there's, there's not an obvious rigid structure to Matthew's gospel, but there are five large pieces of extended teaching in Matthew's gospel. And some of the commentators like to say that Uh, The gospel sort of uh, centers around or or hangs upon these five sections of teaching. Um, The first is the Sermon on the Mount, as we know it, chapters 5 to 7, which is all about how citizens of the kingdom of God are to live. The second major section of teaching is chapter 10, where Jesus teaches his disciples about how they're to conduct themselves on evangelistic journeys. In chapter 13, there are parables, a series of parables about the kingdom of God. In chapters 18 to 20, Jesus teaches on the warnings about entrance into the kingdom of God, as well as the subject of forgiveness. And then in chapters 24 to 25, Jesus teaches on the end of human history. And there's a lot there that would tie in with some of the things we've been thinking about in the book of Revelation. So those are the five main sections of teaching in Matthew's gospel. But in and around those sections, of course, uh, we have stories about the birth of Jesus, about the life of Jesus, the temptations of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. This book is all about Jesus. And it doesn't matter what time of year you're reading it in. Uh, I did actually intend to start this series a few weeks ago, but uh, it was taking a little bit longer to get through Revelation than I had thought. So it's not really to do with the time of year that we're coming up with. But this is a book all about Jesus and the truth of his first coming into the world. Uh, and so uh, with all of that in mind, we turn now to read uh, the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel, which we want to uh, study together today. Matthew chapter 1, and we read from verse 1 and we hear God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, or again that word could be, if you use the Old Testament word, Messiah, 14 generations. Amen. You can keep that passage open as we make our way through it today. As we think together about the Messiah's family tree. The Messiah's family tree. One of the most popular TV shows in recent years has been the BBC show, Who Do You Think You Are? In every episode, a celebrity is sat down by an expert and they have surprising details revealed to them about their family tree, their their ancestry. And investigating family trees is now big business. It's very popular. There are dedicated websites that you can subscribe to like ancestry.co.uk and you can pay to access all kinds of historical records that will help you to find out about your great 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 grandparents and maybe some of you if you have the time someday uh, you plan to sit down and piece together your family tree or maybe you like to ask or you did like to ask your parents or grandparents about your family tree You might find it strange that the New Testament, as we have it, Matthew's Gospel, begins with a family tree. And even by describing it as a family tree, you might think, well, I'm making it sound more interesting than it might seem to us this morning. Because to put it bluntly, this is just a long list of names. And you might think, well, is that not a very dull way to start a book? But we need to appreciate, friends, that for Matthew's first readers, who, as I mentioned, many of them would have been Jewish readers or listeners, this would have been the most fascinating way for Matthew to begin. This list of names is what we call in the Bible a genealogy. 
And there are quite a few all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And for the Jews, genealogies were crucially important. They were almost like the equivalent of a passport or a birth certificate for us today. Because they they were official proof that you were who you claimed to be. That you belonged in the covenant community of God's people. That you were a descendant of Abraham. Not only that, but the Jews, at least the devout Jews, who took seriously the promises of God in the Old Testament, they believed that through the line of Abraham, God was going to send them an anointed, chosen king. Again, the word in Hebrew is the word Messiah for chosen or appointed. Various Old Testament prophecies, which we'll come to later in Matthew's Gospel, they promised that this Messiah would be from the line of Abraham, And the line of David. If he didn't come from the line of David and from the line of Abraham. Then you could safely say that someone claiming to be a Messiah was not the Messiah at all. And so for generation after generation as the Jews recorded the names of their sons. And kept track of their family trees. They waited for this mighty king. This Messiah to come. With that in mind. Just look at how captivating the first verse of Matthew's gospel would have been for his Jewish listeners. Chapter 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And again, the word Christ there, very important to realize, is not a surname. It's a title. It's the Greek version of the Old Testament word Messiah. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how the first Jewish listeners would have heard it. And Christ or Messiah is the key word, not just in our text this morning, friends, but really all throughout Matthew's gospel. And I'll be trying to highlight that to you in the next few weeks in the choice of sermon titles that I give to you. Notice even how often the word appears in this first chapter, verses 1 16, 17 and 18 all include that word Messiah or Christ. Again, it appears in chapter 2 and verse 4. And so friends, Matthew starts his gospel. In a sense, he breaks the 400-year-old silence between the time of the Old Testament and the time of the New Testament by making this huge claim. Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom my gospel is all about, is the Messiah. And to back up that claim, Matthew gives us Jesus' family tree, his genealogy. And the word genealogy is not used coincidentally here by Matthew either. If you look at verse 1. The word genealogy means origins or beginnings. The very first book of our Bibles is called Origins or Beginnings, the book of Genesis. That's what the word Genesis means. And so the Old Testament begins with the origins of the universe. Matthew begins the New Testament with the human origins, at least, of the Messiah. So this family tree, friends, is crucially important today. It's important for at least three reasons. It's a family tree proving, first of all, That God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. 
It's important to realise as we begin that there are names missing from this family tree. Strictly speaking, uh, Matthew has not listed every single name uh, in Jesus' genealogy going back as far as Abraham. But it's also important to realise that Matthew very intentionally didn't list all the names. And also it's important to know that his first listeners and readers would have been very well aware that he hadn't listed all the names. And so Matthew isn't trying to fool anybody here. He's not trying to get away with anything. Uh, He's simply been selective in the names that he's chosen to include in this genealogy. If you look at verses 6 to 11, for example, Matthew 1 verses 6 to 11 uh, takes us from the time of King David to the exile to Babylon. And five of the kings of Judah from that era are left out. Kings Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Jehoahaz, and Jehoiakim. Matthew has also been selective in the names that he includes between Abraham and David. If you look at verse 5, uh, literally, for example, it would mean that Rahab was the mother of Boaz, the, the husband of Ruth, uh, which couldn't possibly be true because there were at least a hundred years between the time of Rahab and the time of Boaz and Ruth. But again, Matthew and his Jewish listeners would have known this. They would have realised this. They, they had the, the full and complete records elsewhere, both in Scripture and outside of Scripture. They could have turned to Genesis or First Chronicles or wherever it was if they wanted the full list of names. What Matthew seems to be doing, friends, in this selective list of names is he is emphasising the completeness of Old Testament history. He's emphasising the finality of the Old Testament era and that the Old Testament era now needs to go on and enter into this new era, the era of the Messiah. If you look on down at verse 17, he says at the end of this genealogy, verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations And from the deportation to the Christ, 14 generations. Some commentators make much of the fact that the Hebrew consonants in David's name add up to 14 as well. And this was a process of gematria or gematria, process of counting up the the numerical value of syllables according to the Hebrew alphabet. And so this number 14 keeps appearing here. You can take or leave that about the numerical values. But you can see that Matthew does mention the number 14. And we know from Revelation, of course, that number 7 is very symbolic. And so we have 7 times 2 here to get to 14. And we have that number of 14 repeated 3 times over. Number 3 also being a a number of uh, a degree of finality or completeness in the Bible. And so perhaps what Matthew is doing here is he is saying that the Old Testament era is complete. From Abraham to David to the exile and now to the Christ. And he's also emphasising to his friends the names of David and Abraham. And those names are here to show us in this genealogy, friends, that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Just listen again to the words God spoke to Abraham In Genesis 15 verse 5. uh, He brought him outside and said. Look toward heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. 
And then he said to Abraham, or Abram as he was at that point, so shall your offspring be. And of course we know today that God wasn't just speaking in biological terms to Abraham. He was speaking in spiritual terms that that Abraham's spiritual descendants would be more than could be numbered, like the stars of the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. Listen to what he said to him in Genesis 22, verse 18. In your offspring, offspring singular, God says to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. So through one seed of Abraham, one son of Abraham, God's promises to bring salvation and blessing to all the world would have their fulfillment. And Matthew with his genealogy here is saying Jesus fits that criteria. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. They, those promises have come to fruition in Jesus of Nazareth. And friends, not only was Jesus' first advent, his, his first coming into the world, the fulfillment of God's promises. But our whole Christian faith still rests on God's promises. And Jesus' first coming proves that God keeps his promises. And so we can trust him to keep whatever promises we're still waiting to see completely fulfilled today. Jesus is, or sorry, God has promised us that the church will survive that the church will continue to grow, that the church will still exist at the end of the world. I will build my church, Jesus has said. We've thought about this frequently in Revelation. So that even though sometimes the church seems so weak and so vulnerable to us, we believe the promise and we persevere. (coughs) God has promised that one day we, his people, will be completely perfect. Free from sin, not even wanting to sin, not even able to sin anymore. Sometimes that seems almost impossible to us when the same old sins catch us out again. But we believe the promise and we look forward to that day of our glorification. Sometimes it's very hard to see how God could be working out all things for good in the lives of his people. When we we lose a job or, or we don't get it in the first place or... We've been sharing the gospel with a loved one and we're not seeing anything happen or we suffer pain or trial or bereavement. But by faith, we continue to believe that our God is a God who keeps his promise. Remember how old Abraham was before he saw anything of God's promises being fulfilled. We looked at it way back earlier in the year. Remember how God had promised him all this land and all these people and all these blessings and yet When his dying day came, Abraham owned just one tiny field in which he buried his wife. And he had just one son to carry on his legacy, the covenant promises. And yet generations and generations later, friends, the New Testament begins here by showing us that the king of kings, that the seed of Abraham indeed did come. The one who would bring those blessings and save his people from their sins. What good is a big list of names? Well, they're part of the proof that God kept his promises to Abraham. And we can be encouraged that he will keep his promises to us as well. So a family tree that shows that God keeps his promises. But secondly, 
A family tree that shows that God's grace finds all kinds of people. A family tree that shows that God's grace finds all kinds of people. Matthew's genealogy is a list almost entirely of men's names. And that's not surprising because that's how the Jews did things. They, they traced their lineage more often than not through the men, the heads of families and tribes and so on. Some records did include women, but usually the records focused on the men. And that being the case, it's all the more surprising that Matthew includes several women here. Especially given the circumstances of some of these women's lives. The first woman mentioned is Tamar, or Tamar, depending on your preference for pronunciation. Uh, In verse 3, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, one of the... Twelve patriarchs of Jacob's, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, uh, the Israelite tribes. And really, Judah became the, the leading tribe uh, of Israel. And even during his own lifetime, Judah himself was sort of the leader of his brothers. And yet, Judah and Tamar entered into despicable, unspeakable sexual immorality, incestual sexual immorality, which resulted in Judah's son Perez being born. Rahab is the second woman mentioned, verse 5. You might be familiar with her story, boys and girls, if you remember the story of Joshua sending the spies into the land of Canaan. And this lady Rahab helped them. But again, she was a sexually immoral woman. She, She wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Canaanite living in Jericho. Verse 5 mentions Ruth, the great grandmother of King David. Again, not an Israelite by birth. A Moabite. The Moabites were pagans and part of their uh, pagan idol worship involved, uh, involved again unspeakable sexual immorality. Look at the second line of verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Who's that talking about? Well, it's talking about Bathsheba. Again, another relationship that began with sexual sin. The last woman mentioned is, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, verse 16. And whilst, of course, there are no question marks around Mary's sexual purity because we know she was a virgin until she was married to Joseph. Uh, Nonetheless, Mary was most likely a teenager when Gabriel first visited her. She most likely wouldn't have been able to read. She was just a a rural girl, a, a nobody living nowhere, doing nothing significant. And because of her age and because of the timing of Jesus' birth, Evidence from the Gospels elsewhere would suggest that people questioned Mary's claims to virginity before marriage for the rest of her life. So when you think about the women listed here in Jesus' family tree, friends, you start to appreciate how God's grace reaches all kinds of people. Regardless of what the world might think of them, despite whatever their background, their history, their particular sins. But it would be very unfair of me to single out the women on this list as if all the men are squeaky clean. Some of the men on this list have just as much scandal attached to their names as the women. I mentioned Judah already. He was the one who initiated in many ways the the things that led to the the sin with Tamar. King David initiated the the adultery and deception and murder that went on in his relationship with Bathsheba and Uriah. Even the great Abraham, again we thought about it earlier this year, the 
the bad mistakes that he made more than once, but particularly in regard to taking Hagar and having a son with her. Some of the kings of Judah mentioned in this family tree were wicked scoundrels. Verse 10 mentions King Manasseh. Uh, 2 Kings 21 verse 9 says that Manasseh led God's people astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh was one of the worst kings in the history of God's people. We could go right through this list, friends, name by name. And we could find all kinds of things about them that are less than impressive, downright scandalous. And yet here they are in the family tree of the Messiah, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. And you see, this was where many of the Jews in Jesus' day had missed the point. This is what Matthew is writing to tell them. Nothing was more important to some of the Jews in Jesus' day than to be able to trace their family line all the way back to Abraham. As long as you could say, here are all my descendants, here's where I can show that I belong uh, in the line of Abraham, then you considered yourself a righteous person. And you can see footage, by the way, taking place in Israel, even in these past few weeks, of Jewish people who still think that they're righteous simply because they can trace their biological lineage back to Abraham and who spit in the faces or spit on the ground when Christians walk past them. They thought that as long as you can do that, you're okay. Friends, the family tree of Jesus proves that is total nonsense. The family tree of Jesus proves that there is no one righteous. No, not one. The family tree of Jesus proves that we are all in need of God's grace. And I think it's important for us to remember this in our context today. In our denomination and other denominations like ours, we, we cherish our covenant theology. We believe wholeheartedly that God is the God of our parents and of our children. And that he's made the same promises to them as he's made to us. But friends, no matter how many generations of your family have been members of this church or any other church... Go back far enough and we're all pagans. If you were able to go back far enough, you would find someone with your last name worshipping a god, gods or no gods, instead of worshipping the living and true God. And all of that to say no one should ever be made to feel like a second class citizen or an outsider in a local church. Because when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're all outsiders to begin with. We're all sinners and none of our families are perfect families, no matter how much we perhaps keep up that pretense some of the time. And in fact, what brings more glory to God and what more clearly displays the power of the gospel is when lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds with lots of different last names are worshipping together and sharing life together in the local church to the glory of God. Paul says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus' family tree, friends, proves that to be true. One writer commenting on this family tree of Jesus says, Jesus came both for and through outcasts. He came for outcasts 
And he came through a family line of outcasts. And he came to redeem outcasts. He came to make outsiders insiders in the kingdom of God. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew himself, the writer of this gospel, is proof of that. I wonder, has he done that for you? Do you believe that he can do that for you? That no matter your sin, your social standing, your history, your last name, your family circumstances, God's Messiah, Jesus, can save you from your sin and give you a hope and a future and a place in his kingdom. So this family tree proves that uh, God keeps his promises. It proves that God's grace finds all kinds of people. Thirdly and finally, it proves that God really sent his son, our king, into the world. This family tree proves that God really sent his son, our king, into the world. We thought a bit about Abraham, but as I said, the other important name in this genealogy of Matthew's is David. We see David's name in verse 1, the very beginning, and again in verse 17 at the very end of the genealogy. And of course, he's mentioned in the middle as well. And that's again another way to perhaps understand why, why Matthew has been so selective with this genealogy. David's at the start of it, David's in the middle of it, and David is at the end of it. R.T. France, uh, the commentator I mentioned earlier, he says this family tree is about dynasty. It's, in other words, it's a royal family tree. It's a royal family tree. Again, think about some of God's promises to David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom, God says, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promised to David that not only would he have an immediate successor on the throne, that was Solomon, but in fact David's throne would last forever. There would always be a son of David who would have the right to sit on his throne. And again, this is why family history was so important to the Jews, particularly after the exile. And you can read in Nehemiah and Ezra that Time was taken after the exile to make sure the records were in order. That everybody knew who everybody was. Because the people wanted to make sure that the line of David is still intact. That we're still on track to get a Messiah someday. And years and years go by and people are waiting and wondering when it's going to happen. And then after the exile eventually God falls silent. There's 400 years of silence between the time of the Old Testament and the time of the New Testament. And then finally, the angel Gabriel, God's messenger, breaks the silence. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Gabriel's words to Joseph. Joseph, notice, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The king is coming. The son of David. The one who will fulfill all the promises. He will save his people from their sins. He will provide the redemption that Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and David and Abraham looked forward to in faith. In Matthew 21 verse 14. We're told that people in the Jerusalem temple area began 
crying out to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. And some of the other people who heard this, being, who heard this happening, they said to Jesus, do you hear what is being said? In other words, do you, are you not going to correct them? Because they realized, son of David, that's, that's like calling him Messiah. They knew that to call someone the son of David is to say this is the divine heaven sent Messiah. But Jesus did not correct them. Because that's exactly who he is. Emmanuel, God with us, the son of David. And this genealogy, friends, proves that he came in a moment of time and history. This is his family tree. And yet the most remarkable thing about King Jesus is not just that he came down from heaven, that he was born into the family tree of David, but then he, that he then went to a tree outside Jerusalem to die for the sins of Abraham and David and all his people. Paul Tripp, a pastor and counsellor in the United States, reflecting on this, he said, before the foundations of the earth, there was a tree in Jesus' future. And Tripp wasn't talking about the family tree into which Jesus was born, but the tree upon which Jesus would die. He would die there, yes, for the sins of some of his biological family, but he died there for the sins of his spiritual family, his his own spiritual offspring, all of us who, like Abraham by faith and like David, believe the promises of God. That's the amazing thing about our king, friends, that he didn't stay on his lofty throne where he was deservedly receiving the praise and adoration of angels, but he came down to be neglected and misunderstood and persecuted and on a tree. Our perfect king died the death of an outsider outside the city walls so that we could go inside the city walls. And friends, this family tree at the start of Matthew's gospel proves, proves that it really happened, that he came in a moment of time and history into a line of human beings. The story is told of a small tribe in Papua New Guinea In 1970, a young couple working for Wycliffe Bible Translators began translating Matthew's gospel for this local tribe, but they decided to leave the first 17 verses until the end. Thought, well, we need to crack on. It's just a list of names. We'll, We'll get to it eventually. So they did the whole gospel, and then they came back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and they finished it with the help of a local tribesman named Sisia. And when they had finished their work that day, Sisia said to them, there will be an important meeting in the house of our chief tonight. You should come along and bring your day's work with you. And Des, uh, one of the translators, wondered why all of a sudden is this meeting being held? He was a bit nervous what's going to happen at this meeting. Uh, and as he entered into the, the house, there was a, a sense of tension in the air. He, he felt a little bit uneasy. The place was packed out. He was directed to sit down beside the fire. And Sisia, the man who had helped him in his work, announced that he wanted Mr. Des to read what he had translated that day for everyone to hear. And so Des began to read, These are the ancestors of Jesus Messiah, a descendant of King David and Abraham. 
And as days read on, he could feel the tension and interest of everyone in the room. People aged so close that one man's beard was resting on the page from which Des was reading. Not knowing if he caused offence or how people were going to react, Des read on and eventually finished and looked up. The people weren't angry. They were amazed. Why didn't you tell us this before? Only real people have family trees recorded. This means that Jesus is not just some spirit. This means that Jesus is not just the imagination of some white man. He was a real person who walked the earth. That's, that's what the people said to the translators when they finished their work. See, this clinched it for them. Jesus was real. Jesus had come. Jesus had descendants. And the gospel, the good news about him, was to be believed. And that tribe, of course, were absolutely right. God's Messiah has come. He is to be believed. His family tree proves it. The question for you, demanded of you, by Matthew's gospel is, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God, the only saviour of your sins? Amen.